My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. So, uh, Alex, what have you been up to this week? Oh man, I've been getting Kiridashi orders out the cloaca. I've been having <laughs> so many come through. Um, I've actually had to lim- limit the numbers available on my uh, on my Etsy store because the so many orders have been coming through for them internationally, France, London, America... Um, that it's actually gotten in the way of my other commissions, so I've, I've had to slow that down manually. Yeah, um, you're, fin- you're going to have to start. Uh, you're going to have to start stamping them with like a, a, a cleft note or something like that. The musical yeah. Kiridashis. Yes, yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, not- that was a that was a fun little discovery, actually. <laughs> yeah. But I- um, one of the benefits of having a good ring to your anvil. Yeah. Um, but I finished that taproot puller, which uh, came out quite nice. It was a real bear to forge. Uh, I should not have chosen to make it out of truck coil spring. <laughs> when I when I saw that you you chosen that material, I was like, ooh, he had fun. Oh uh, man, it <laughs> wrecked me. And all, like all the way through doing it, I was thinking up new and better ways to make them easier because I've had uh, a lot of interest about them because it's, it's something that, that you know the commercially available ones do a terrible job mm. and they rip out huge amounts of soil um, whereas this old style old-fashioned style just is really neat um, and so a lot of people want them and I'm thinking I, I can't bring myself to do this again out of truck coil spring so <laughs> i've now got a much better system in mind for the the future ones that people have been ordering um, i think i think they do all right out of mild steel to be honest yeah to be honest everyone seems to think that um you, you really want hardenable steel for the teeth on it but uh, if you have a thick enough profile mild steel i mean traditionally they were made out of cast iron which is well yeah which is quite soft um, yeah uh, so mild brittle. steel would would do it and i'm thinking like if the teeth were six six mil thick or eight mil thick it i reckon it'd be uh pretty pretty good oh mate yeah so with a blunt taper on them no worries um uh, so um i also made up a um a, it's a scuffle hoe or yeah. a diamond plate hoe which has actually worked really really well um and the rest of the week for me is catching up on hunting knife orders of which i've got three more to do currently um mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a uh, casting class coming up, which is going to be good. I finally dug out my graphite crucibles. Oh, you found uh, them. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Fair enough. That's cool. Um, Also, I got a uh, a new anvil dropped into my workshop, actually. It's a um, Wilkinson Queen's Dudley anvil, which um, Mm. I've been doing some research on. They're actually cast up. This series were cast up to actually bring over to australia for settlement to help build the country nice. essentially uh so it was actually this one was made in 1810 uh, and originally was 250 pounds however it is missing its heel it got snapped off and after talking to uh my lovely co-host here uh learned a bit more that they used to on those old ones um not sort of cast them as a homogenous piece the heel and horn often were welded on which, you know, you drop it in the wrong way or you work the hardy tools a little bit too hard and crack off comes the heel. 
yeah, um, and, and it is quite a clean break too, which lends credence to that. It's, it's one of the reasons why um, quite a few people will say avoid using wedged hardy tools. Um, mm. there, is, there is kind of a school of, uh, of thought, especially in farrier circles, about using wedge tools where they don't have a shoulder that sits on the face of the anvil. They're just like a taper. Okay. Um, and that means that basically when you strike the, the piece, like you could put the hardy tool in and hit it with a block of wood and it locks it in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way it doesn't bounce around in the anvil. Um, especially when you're like running the hardy tool while you're still uh, forging on the anvil face as well. Yeah. Right. Um, the problem with that is obviously you're driving a wedge into the hardy hole. And the hardy hole normally sits right near the weld seam uh, on a lot of anvils. So mm. it's a really You good... can actually see where it has sheared on this one. You can yeah. still see the shadow of the, the chamfer yeah. uh, around it. Yeah. So, so it, you know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a really good way to ruin a good anvil. And especially if you're using, like a, top, uh, if you're using a hardy tool with a striker, yeah. um, that's a really good way to, to screw your anvil up. Now, the modern cast anvils it doesn't have that issue because they're cast out of homogenous steel. Mm. Um, so they don't have the inherent flaws in them. I still don't advise using wedge tools. I, you know, the... I'm actually surprised to hear, hear that uh, that's still a thing. I would have thought it'd be just common sense to use a shouldered tool, and if you have problems with it bouncing around, have a longer shank on it. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny, because um, one of the more popular hot cuts out there is the Brazil-style hot cut, um, which is a wedged hardy tool. Um, you can see millions of people making them on YouTube and stuff like that. I know quite a few blacksmiths who use it still. And yeah, it's a, it's a wedged hot cut, and that's actually how I cracked the heel off my cast iron anvil is I made a Brazil style hot cut and mm. um, because it's a cast iron anvil it's quite brittle anyway and uh, yeah I cracked the heel off that's that's how it worked right well this anvil despite missing its heel uh, has a lovely large round horn on it which is a very functional thing to have especially since my two anvils uh, main anvils are a Sawyer's anvil uh, and my cast steel one actually has a square horn which mm. is a pain in the areas <laughs> <laughs> the cloaca um, <laughs> so having the nice round horn is, is going to be quite wonderful but the thing about it despite having a missing horn it has the best ring i have ever experienced on an anvil mm. it you you just sort of gravity drop a ball peen hammer onto the surface of this thing and it bounces right off it's it's incredible the amount of rebound this thing has so uh for I know it doesn't really lend too much help, but it does stop your arm getting tired when you're working large billets. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm very much looking forward to actually having access to such good rebound because my other my, my cast steel is only about 66 pounds, so it's not much mass under it, mm. um, which makes it tiring to work big billets on. Um, and the Sawyer's anvil is a little bit flatter than I'd like. Um, but largely because without any horn or heel, it, it basically has no reverberation. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not um, only that, but they were naturally softer because they Softer, were, that's right. It's funny because they're called a Sawyer's anvil, but they're actually a saw doctor's anvil. Um, you know, because saws weren't really forged in the traditional sense. They were rolled. Oh, cut. Yeah, rolled and cut. Mm. And, um... But a saw doctor would, would, you know, go in there and tune the, the saw, straighten it and... Um, you know, make sure there's no bends and warps and twists and stuff like that in it. And in order to do that, they'd have to have an anvil. And um, normally that anvil would have a relatively softish face because you wouldn't want to mar the surface of the saw Hmm. um, while you're straightening. So you'd use a relatively soft face hammer and you'd use a relatively soft face anvil in order to uh, prevent 
making dings in a nice saw blade, which then had to go to, you know, be sold or go back to the person you'd repaired it for. So, yeah, yeah. So the old Sawyer's quote-unquote anvils, um, they can have really good rebound if they're in the Japanese style, because Japanese smiths use Sawyer's pattern anvils for all of their forging. Right. Um, but they have well, mine's, hardened, a, mine's they, an M and H Armitage made yeah, in London, so yeah. they have a <laughs> they have a hardened face on the Japanese ones because they're used for striking and stuff like that. But the the English and the French and the German patterns will all uh, have relatively soft faces because they're used for doctoring saws. Right. Interesting. A little little uh, <laughs> uh, fact mission with Sam Towns. Yeah. I have my own personal rating system for anvils. Um, first, I like it to have a good sound to it, uh, have a nice ring to it, so to speak. <laughs> uh, being a mu- musically minded person, I'll, I'll often judge it by the cleanliness and pleasantness of the sound. But the the main thing, I, I tend to give it a percentage rating, and I drop a one inch ball bearing about arm height, uh, arm length height above it, onto the anvil, and then sort of gauge roughly how far back up the ball bounces and give it a percentage rating. My Sawyer's anvil, I get maybe 60%, 70%. This um, Wilkinson anvil, I get about 95%. Yeah. Yeah, It's phenomenal. I love it. Yeah, I Uh, mean, on my 40 kilo um, O'Dwyer, the modern cast steel, um, I get about about 90%. Nice. um, 88, 90%. Um, yeah. Rebound. On my uh, rail track anvil, I get about two percent. <laughs> <laughs> Clunk. Uh, but anyway, that's, an, that, that's enough about me. What are you? What have you been up to this week? Uh, yeah. Sorry, before I get off on a tangent about anvils. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I um, yeah, I've been uh, not really busy. Um, I I had a bit of a rough week last week, if I'm honest, um, and. The uh, the old black dog kind of got me down, so uh, I've been dealing with that and trying to trying to pull myself out of that dark pit that you sometimes fall in. Mm. Um, about Monday, I decided that I was either going to uh, pick myself up and dust myself off and, and have another go, or I was just going to have to give up entirely because you know there's no point in going on, just kind of uh, just living. So. He means I, give up and move to Tasmania. That that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> but um, no, I ended up uh, cleaning out my workshop, completely reorganizing it. Um, God, that looked good by the time you were finished with it. Yeah, I actually started at like seven o'clock at night, and I didn't finish until ten. Uh, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I you know, went in like a dervish and just uh, completely ripped the guts out of it. Threw out a lot of stuff. Threw out a lot of. Um, old projects that I just never was going to get around to finishing or finished projects that I really didn't like having around. Mm-hmm. Um, I've still got a lot I need to, to organize in the shed, but at least it's now clear so that I can get to back to work. Uh, and that part of that was preparation for my move to uh, prep for Perth Night Show, um, which is now only two months away. Yeah. Scary thought. Um <laughs> So I've got um, I've got a lot of work ahead of me. I've got a list of projects that's about thirty items long um, for the knife show. Lovely. Uh, and it's probably going to get longer before as I go. <laughs> uh, this year I'm, I'm taking my focus away from the uh, the fellow knife makers and taking my focus towards the customer. So um, you know I'm looking to make a little bit more 
more stock, less artsy-fartsy crap, but uh, I'm still going to have some artsy-fartsy crap on the table because... Uh, Good to know. Well, I want to get my uh, full voting membership in the AKG uh, at the next... Uh, at the knife show. Um, so I'll probably be contacting Bruce in the next week or so to uh, organise that so that he can test my blades. Um, so I've got to make those three, which have to be of a, of a standard. Uh, and I'm going to try and make them as good as I possibly can because you, there's no point in aiming just to pass. Um, because well, you've you, got to impress. Well, not only that, but if you aim just to pass and you fall short, you fail. If you aim to be superlative and you fail, like, and you miss the mark, then you uh, end up passing anyway. Shoot for the moon, and even if you miss, you'll end up amongst the stars. Oh, I really hate that saying. <laughs> mainly because uh-huh. the mainly because the stars are like millions of light years beyond the moon. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. I I understand the idea though. Yeah, but um, yeah, exactly right. Um, the the closer you aim to center, the more likely you are to hit the bullseye. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the uh, preparation is going to get started underway very very soon. I've got I've already started a whole bunch of blades as people have seen on my YouTube channel. I've forged a Bowie knife and a Kukri and a sax, a couple of saxes, a Puko, uh, all that kind of stuff. I plan on making some other stuff. Uh, made a run of hexhawks yesterday. Um, well, I didn't actually make a run of hexhawks. We just punched the eyes on five hexhawks. Um, because then Mick had to take off, but uh, those will be getting done. I've I cut the billets for fourteen more. <laughs> right. So um, that's that's all of the material with a hacksaw. Uh, with an angle grinder. <laughs> I'm not I'm not that kind. <laughs> and they're all still hardened. I'm not going through that. <laughs> but yeah, so I um I cut all those up ready for. Uh, ready for punching and um, Mick and I will probably take a day to just punch all of those because then once they're punched I can work on my, on my own mm-hmm. uh, especially now that I've got the press makes it a lot yeah. easier you need to get a uh, punching die for your press I really do and it's something that I'm planning on building probably next year um, now that I've one of those little frame things that pulls it off again yeah you? the strippers yeah, yeah. Um, I'm kind of working out how that's going to work with my press because the way that the the way that the whole piston assembly is uh, held on, it's held on by a plate bracket that's only three mil uh, thick steel mm-hmm. uh, that's bolted to the main bracket, which is supports the press. So mm-hmm. it's supported by you know like eight mil plate steel uh, when it's pushing down, but when it's pulling up, it's only supported by like three bolts going through uh, three mil plate steel. Okay. So I'm my main concern is if uh, you saw Derek Melton's um, story a while back, he actually buckled his entire plate assembly on his press because a hammer billet got stuck to the the hammer die, the punch yep. die, and uh, pulled the the whole thing apart. What about like um, lube? Well, yeah, like punch, char- charcoal punch lube. dust. Punch lube helps, but uh, even with lube, as uh, you'll know from watching, um, you know, guys like John Switzer and stuff, the punch can still get stuck. Um, so it's a concern that I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have the piston fall out of the frame while I'm working it. <laughs> 
as a as a quick segue before uh, Sam continues his story, um, you may remember our episode on lube, where um, Sam actually said charcoal dust works phenomenally for getting um, punch uh, drifts out of out of hole, ho- eye holes. Uh, if you ever want to play a prank on a blacksmith who's using a monkey tool to make rivets, drop some charcoal dust in there. <laughs> You'll it, Did you it, do that it's to yourself? comical. I did it to myself and <laughs> learned very quickly that that is a fantastic prank to play on someone. Well, it can go one of two ways. Did it did it shoot a giant shower of charcoal oil over you? No, the, the, the rivet would not stay in the monkey tool. Yeah. Every hit would shoot it back out again like a Mexican jumping bean. It's, it was... <laughs> it's super effective. Like, you know, like... I I was I was a little unconvinced when I first heard of it um, how how effective it was. Yeah. And then the first time that Mick and I tried it, um, we couldn't keep the punch on the hammer billet. Yeah. Because it kept bouncing out of the hammer billet. And I'm like, so oh, effective. this is annoying. It just makes takes the friction down to basically zero. And that's <laughs> it. It's it's insanely <laughs> it's insanely effective. Um, yeah. It can almost be annoyingly so sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, if you really want to play a prank on a on a smith, squirt some WD forty in the riveting monkey tool. <laughs> 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 Woof. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that that is something I plan on doing with the press. But I'm, uh, but at the moment, I've got ten hammer heads that I've forged, uh, and now I've got. Oh well, I, once I've punched all of these hex hawks, I'll have eighteen hex hawks to uh to finish right um <laughs> and that's on top of the at least uh 10 blades that i've already finished and i plan on finishing another 10 uh before the show right jeez um, you got your work cut out for you then yeah so i've got a, still got a bit of uh blade forging to do um that'll probably be something i'll do on my live stream tomorrow which will be a week ago from when this uh, upload comes up Mm-hmm. Probably be forging some blades stock out. I've uh, I recently drew out a couple of uh, fifty two one hundred bearings using the press. Thank God for the press. Um, so now <laughs> I've got some inch by quarter uh, fifty two one hundred stock to play with, which is fun. So I'll probably be doing that tomorrow. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's just been uh, dealing with the physical and mental uh, stuff, which is not fun to hear about, and uh, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm sure I speak for the entire audience when I say that your uh, brothers and I are behind you. Well, that's that's why I'm still here. That's why I'm, uh, you know, that's that's why I'm still around. To be honest, uh, is this awesome community that we have is incredibly supportive, and I've had a few people uh, reach out. Um, shout out to Adam. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there's it's while uh, while you have those rough times, it's really important to remember that there are people out there who uh, who do care. So. And uh, that that being said, you know, if any of you guys that are listening to this have, are going through hard times, please feel free to reach out to me um, at samtownsplaysmith at gmail.com. I'm always willing to hear the stories, no matter what I'm going through. Sometimes supporting each other through the pain is help, is better help than uh, sitting in the dark and, and letting your own brain play tricks. So, yeah, it's been it's been uh, it's been an interesting week, but uh, luckily I'm kind of on the way out and um, and getting back into. The- of things hopefully we'll uh hopefully we'll see some interesting stuff yeah absolutely i'm really i was uh really enjoyed following along with your um 
live streams that you did, even the hand sanding shenanigans and that, watching your collection for the Perth Knife Show last year form from, you know, nothing into this amazing collection that went up uh, on display. So very keen to see what you come up with this year. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the plan for the content for the next two months. Uh, looks like the, the poll that I put out on my YouTube channel, everyone wants to see vlog-style videos. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm planning on doing is a weekly kind of weekly vlog. Um kind of detailing what I'm going through with the Perth Knife Show, the processes that I use to, you know, complete batches of material and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll just make it easier for me to, to get work done while also continuing to upload content to, to the channel and uh, also might give some insight into how you approach uh, a knife show or, you know, approach production line knife making. So Yeah, absolutely. We'll see what happens. Well, I'll probably end up doing a lot more live streams as well because I, I enjoyed those in January as well. Well, it gives you something to do while hand sanding. Well, that's it, and it kept me keen because you know <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't make the excuse not to like, just to stop and go watch a TV show or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the crowds were watching. <laughs> but with that being said, I think we should move into tool time or inspiration of the week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, inspiration of the week. It's it's because we missed the sponsor message. I'm just you know all screwed up <laughs> from that. All right. So I, I, I guess I'll go first. Yep, you may um, as well. Uh, everyone knows I've been uh, working on upping my game with uh, various forms of ornamentation on recent knives, um, just to try and uh, up my game overall and make things a bit more visually appealing. So my inspiration this week is Olivia from Wildcraft Knives in Tennessee. Um, she makes very sort of uh, mountain man style knives. Um, and uses Damascus in interesting ways. Like you'll have a monosteel blade, but a Damascus guard um, with some very interesting pattern work, which on doing an entire blade out of would be tricky to get the pattern looking right, but on a guard looks you can get a lot more tighter detail um, with, with uh, less drawing out and such. Um, and so it, it creates these incredible looking things with brute to forge finishes on the blades um, and having that contrast with the clean detail of the Damascus and the guard. But um, the thing that has really been inspiring me around, about her work is the incredible file work that she does on the spines of her knives uh, and all around the handles because she does full tang knives. So around the handles, um, just the most incredible file work that... Um, you know, it made me go out, literally made me go out and get a decent set of needle files and start practicing with it. Nothing that I've um, put up for sale yet because I, I like to get to a certain level before I sell my work. But um, it's, I always enjoy seeing the knives that she puts up on her Instagram feed, which uh, you too can follow. She's just uh, Wildcraft Knives, all one word is her Instagram handle. Um, and very, very talented lady and um, very much worth following. Yeah, actually, um, you put me onto her a couple of weeks ago. Um... I wasn't aware of her at the time, but yeah, it's, I've, I've really been enjoying looking at her stuff. It's been really, uh, really cool, cool, uh, cool little designs. I really like the hunting knives. Um, I'm always a bit of being a big fan of mountain man style stuff. Mm. And it's funny you should mention that she uses Damascus in her, fi- in her fittings. Cause you know, that was something that I was uh, considering doing a video about is encouraging people to try Damascus in fittings rather than going straight for a Damascus blade. Because yeah. a lot of people have this thing where they want to make up a Damascus blade, but getting Damascus to the point where it's completely seamless, like it doesn't have any delaminations or flaws in the weld, is actually fairly difficult to do. Hmm. Whereas you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff if you're only making it for hilt fittings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can 
forge with confidence knowing that even if there is a minor DLAM in there, you're not going to have to worry about it holding an edge. Uh, <laughs> so that's it. If you want to try that kind of stuff, that's a good way to go. Yeah. So how about you, Sam? Um, so my inspiration for the week is a guy I've taken inspiration from in a couple of the knife designs that I've used over the years, and he's actually the guy that inspired me to uh, forge my favorite pattern of uh, full tang knife. Uh, and that is Nick Rossi from uh, NESM, or New England School of Metalwork. And uh, Nick is an artisan bladesmith. He also does a lot of blacksmithing stuff as well. Um, and he's a top-class instructor. I would love to do a couple classes under him if I ever managed to get out to New England. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he uh, kind of... I, I'm not sure if he developed the technique or if, it, if he simply kind of adapted it from someone else. I, I'm not sure. But um, he's done a bunch of videos on the uh, New England School of Metalwork YouTube video, uh, uh, YouTube channel, sorry, uh, about forging integral guard um, knives. Right. Now, when you think of integral guards, normally you're thinking of forging from like square stock or, or round stock, and he has done a couple of those, but he forges integral guarded uh, flat stock knives. Right. Um, if anyone watched my two-hour knife challenge video, or the live stream I did of forging the knife out of Damascus, uh, you'll notice that it had the finger guard forged into the profile of the knife. Mm -hmm. And that idea, that whole process, came from Nick Rossi. Um, he made, I think it, the first one I ever watched was forging the fighting knife, uh, in which he took a, a six-inch length of... Uh, 5160, I think it was inch and a quarter high by quarter an inch wide, and turned it into an eight inch bladed, five inch handled, integrally guarded fighting knife. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the man is insane. Uh, he forges so close to finish, it's not funny. Um, and you know, that's that's like skating the surface of what he does. He also makes really cool Hiko and Akami um, friction folders and stuff. Um, he he really likes forge finishes. Um, so he forges 90% to shape, um, and mm. he, he kind of has, he's, has a very, very kind of unique style. Uh, I haven't seen him do a lot of Damascus, I know he does do Damascus, but he really likes forging those mono steel blades and getting the character out of the actual creation rather than the, you know, interior, uh, interior mechanics of the steel. Mm. So yeah, he's definitely worth checking out. I believe he just goes under Nick Rossi on Instagram. It could be Nick Rossi Knives. I'll have to double check when we put out the post on our Forgecast page. Um, yep. You'll obviously be able to find the links to both of their Instagrams, Wildcraft Knives and Nick Rossi, on the Forgecast post when it comes out when this episode is live. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely worth checking out if you're interested in bladesmithing, specifically forging uh, close to shape and trying different techniques. He's done videos on various techniques. I don't think I've ever seen a man point a bar of uh, 5160 as fast as he can. <laughs> He's a machine. So, uh, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, fantastic. So now we shall get into Tool Time. <laughs> this week we are talking about the various forms of blowtorch that can be found in the blacksmith and bladesmith shop. Yes. 
So uh, the main ones that come to mind are usually the oxyacetylene torches, mm. um, which some people have. Some people are lucky enough to have one of those. Very handy because of the power that they have compared to other types of blow torches. Some people are rich but, enough to have those. <laughs> that's right, yeah, and be able to afford the gas refill. Oh, yeah, man. Um, and the more common are the old uh, map gas or sometimes just straight LPG uh, little handheld torches with little mini canisters. They're, yeah. they're much much more common. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can I, get you can get butane ones, but they're they're pretty useless for most metalworking. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can you can get one of those uh, you know like the butane torches for for making creme brulee, but they're not going to do much work in the in the, in the shop. Yeah, if if you're going to make a Spanish tres leches cake in your forge, then um, butane is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, could, but, you, could, uh, you could instantly caramelize the surface just by sticking it in the forge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You cook a hot dog while you're at it. I but, am um, forging a sausage. <laughs> Shout out to Niels Vandenberg. <laughs> yeah. Marshmallow. <laughs> that man is oh, I love that man. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but map, map gas torches are useful for everything from lighting your forge, as you see Sam do all the time, Yep. Um, to um, heat treatment even. It's also uh, the thing that I mainly use them for, though, is focused heat when doing trickier twists. Mm. on steel like reverse twists and things where getting the heat isolation is necessary where even a coal forge will not get you the heat isolation that you need Uh, great for riveting work as well yeah specifically Uh, on small stock like once you get like to 10 mil and above it the it's diminishing returns (laughs) well that's right i mean it's um Focused heat is is not just their only application though, because the the best part about them, uh, the little map gas torches, um, is that you can buy interchangeable burners for them that can either mm. give you a very focused pencil point uh, or all the way up to quite wide heat gun style burners on them. Yeah, uh, and they you are pricey. Get, you can also get also get oxy map gas, um, yeah. for like jewelry stuff, and uh, they're really useful for brazing small parts. Yes, that's the other reason that my blowtorch gets uh, good work done is, is brazing um, brass and bronze using the pencil tip. Um, fantastic. You know, throw smear a bit of flux on there and heat it up and in you go. And it's a very quick and easy job that uh, can can be done very cheaply, especially since map gas cylinders are only like 12 to $15. Mm. Um, and, they, they, you know, they'll keep burning for a good 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the type of burner that you're using on them. Absolutely, and the pressure you run them at, because uh, some yeah. of the like the trigger, I've got the uh, the standard you know trigger, um, the piezoelectric burner on my map gas torch, um, the fancy and, one, yeah, the fancy one, yeah, the, the, you know like one hundred fifty dollars, and you get three bottles and the and the and the burner, um, but I like the the trigger ability because then I could just kind of you know pull the trigger and light the forge and stuff like that. I don't have to play around with a striker or anything like that. Um, but that's yeah, what that's... I use the old-fashioned little clicker striker. striker <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that um, it's got a, it's kind of a, got a medium density flame on it, so it's, it's not a pencil flame, but it's not a, a you know, like a weed burner flame. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty good at most things. It's um, but it's, it's not. An, it's a it's a Nighthawk and light um, soup can forge flame. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's it's exactly the same uh, as Nighthawk and light. Nighthawk uh, Nighthawk and light used. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a pretty good one. Um, 
I've also got a pencil burner, much like, well, actually, exactly like yours, Alex, because I know which pencil Sam sent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I had two of them. He asked for one. I gave it to him. Um, and they're really useful. I've actually got that one fitted to a propane tank, which you can get from, like, Big W and, and like, your general um, the Target, Kmart, that kind of stuff. In the camping sections, you'll normally find a blowtorch or a little burner uh, that's got propane bottles. I would highly suggest not buying the propane bottles for forge work because they burn a lot colder than the map gas. Because hmm. uh, map gas is actually a mixture of LP uh, of uh, butane and propane. And I've and heard a lot of people say that it's not that big of a difference. It's a massive difference it's in heat. Huge. In in terms of practicality, yeah. it's it's like huge night and day. It all comes down to you know it all comes down to BTUs of heat and butane burns a lot hotter. Um, because uh, butane is more dense than uh, propane, um, but butane is uh, harder to ignite. So the mixture means that you get the easeability, the easy um, ease of ignition of the LB of the propane, but you get the higher BTUs of heat out of the butane. So uh, that's mm. why map gas is the generally, you know, kind of generally uh, encouraged form of gas for that kind of thing. Yeah, but, sorry, Hank. Sorry, Hank Hill, if you're listening. <laughs> propane. Pure propane ain't ain't doing it for us. No, not for us. Um, I mean, in Australia, we don't really do propane except on those small bottles. Um, we do LPG in the uh, eight kilogram barbecue bottles. Uh, I know that a lot of Americans call it propane, but I think that there's actually a an LPG kind of similarity there. Okay, it could be showing my ignorance here, but isn't doesn't LPG just stand for liquid propane gas? Uh, it's liquid petroleum gas. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so it's a totally... Well, it's not totally different, but it's different. Uh, again, more BTUs of heat in LPG than propane. Fair enough. Um, yeah, because it's a petroleum-based rather than... I can't remember what propane is. Mm. But, yeah, but anyway, I know there's a difference. Well... Well, the um, step up from the map gas cylinders, you've got the oxyacetylene setups, which burn much hotter again. I mean, I, you can liquefy things. I was, uh, I was actually going to say that the next step up would be an LPG, um, a naturally aspirated LPG uh, blowtorch. Um, oh, yeah, fair enough. It's essentially like a, a portable um, forge burner. Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, you can buy, uh, you can go on eBay, they're, they're not actually that expensive. You can buy naturally aspirated, or you just look up... Uh, LPG or propane blowtorch, uh, and they normally come with a regulator and a hose, and um, they're they're fairly much analogous to the map gas torches uh, in a, in you know heat ability, um, and then if you want to go the extra mile, you go oxy uh, LPG or oxy propane, which gets so hot that you can actually use them to cut metal like a plasma cutter. Indeed, and then if you want to go super stupid and pay for the license to get the acetylene bottle. The, you know, rent on the acetylene bottles, especially in Australia, you're not allowed to own acetylene. You can only rent a bottle and then you have to get it refilled every three months, I think it is, whether or not you use it hmm. um, because they want to keep control of, because acetylene is an explosive product. Um, people use it to break into ATMs and stuff. Not, not encouraging that because it's no. a really bad idea. <laughs> speaking but, of speaking of not encouraging things, I just want to jump back. If you are buying a naturally aspirated LPG burner, um, when you uh, Sam said a lot of them come with regulators on them, 
Uh, if it doesn't come with a regulator, I highly recommend adding a regulator because operating a, uh, an LPG gas bottle tool without a regulator is asking for trouble. A lot of fires are started every year and houses burnt down from misuse or bad storage uh, of LPG bottles. So get that regulator on there. It's and a one-time thing that you've got to buy. That being said, um, also, barbecue regulators are not blowtorch regulators. Yes. Barbecue and... regulators normally max out at about 4 PSI. Mm. Um, you want to be able to get up to 40 PSI. And to the, the same with oxyacetylene setups, get flashback arrestors. Oh, man. Flashback arrestors all the time, every yeah. day. To, to <laughs> briefly explain what they do, if you uh, operate it in the wrong way or you just have a bad day, the fire at the end of your oxy torch can travel back down the hose into the tank, exploding it, basically turning into a bomb. A flashback arrestor cuts off the supply as soon as it sees the flame traveling back down the hose and cuts off the supply, allow, making that so the flame cannot reach the tank. Yeah, it's a, it's a back pressure issue. Um, and yeah, flashback arresters are just so important. Mm. Please. It's one of those things that it seems like, oh, I don't want to buy that extra thing. Buy the extra thing. You only need to do it once and it will save your life. Most burners these days and most, uh, blow torches and stuff like that come with flashback arresters integrally. Um, That's like Gamaco, uh, our previous sponsor, they, all of their burners, their, um, both the burner itself and their regulator have a flashback arrestor integrally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't I think it's illegal to sell them without flashback arresters now. Don't quote me on that, but um, I'm pretty sure that every manufacturer now has to make them with uh, flashback. I'm, arrestors. I'm more thinking of the crowd that likes to get a discount by buying from China on eBay. <laughs> yeah, you go AliExpress or yeah, that's yeah, it. Okay, so yes, if you're going to go as cheap as cheap can be, be prepared to blow up your workshop. Please do not scrimp on the quality of your at least the regulators. Mm. The blowtorch, the hose could be the problem, Um, but you can always get a decent high-pressure hose from a gas or plumbing supply store for relatively cheap. Or even a camping store. Yeah, even a camping store. But um, yeah, so LPG, uh, I want to get an Oxy LPG set, uh, mainly because I don't have to have a license to have that. (laughs) Because you don't need a license to own oxygen, you only need a license to own acetylene, and even though acetylene has... A ridiculously high BTU uh, rating uh, per gram of acetylene. Um, it's just stupid, exp- stupidly expensive. Hmm. Um, so yeah, oxy oxy LPG or oxy propane is probably where I would aim if you're aiming to get a blowtorch for that kind of stuff. Uh, especially if you're doing decorative twists um, and you're wanting to cut material uh, with a with a cut uh, with a cutter with the, you don't have a plasma cutter or something like that. Um, then oxy, oxy LPG or oxy propane would definitely be my suggestion. But if you can't get any of those, I would still suggest having a blowtorch in your workshop and uh, investing in a map gas torch. Yeah, absolutely. But on that note, let's move on to our, our main topic because we've got a lot to get through. We do. We have been inundated lately with uh, emails from you, the listener. Um, and we thought there's so many to go through that we, we would just do an episode on answering viewer questions because there may, may be many people, there's some very pertinent questions, and there may be many listeners that would benefit from the answers as well. Now, we have a few to get through, so we're going to try and keep the answers short and sweet, um, but nonetheless thorough. <laughs> short and sweet is not my strong suit, but we'll it's not. <laughs> it's not, but I'm going to rein you in. Yeah. <laughs> Alex is the chief Sam Wrangler on this show. Some of the questions are very short. Some of them are not. 
but we'll see how we go. All right, so the first question is from Frank Swearingen. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think it's Swearingen. Swearingen. Yeah. Uh, he asks, what is the best way to make a cheap, affordable coal forge but efficient? Um, straight up, I would actually say that Torbjorn Armand did a fantastic video a while back where he built a wooden framed forge that is filled with sand to act as the fire pit. Uh, or fire pot, I should say. And um, you can attach any sort of blower you want to that, like a hairdryer or you know, whatever. And it's built out of scrap and, and it worked uh, beautifully. I would like to shout out a friend of mine also, uh, Adam from Speargrass Forge, did a video on a similar build. Uh, he called it his J-Bod Forge, which is just a box of dirt. Um, <laughs> and that's that's the forge that he runs every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and he runs that on charcoal. You can run it on coal, you can run it on charcoal. Uh, and it's literally just a box of dirt. <laughs> yeah, so literally you can do it for dirt cheap, Frank. <laughs> I mean, you can go without the box and literally dig a hole in the ground. <laughs> Yeah, that's but, right. Roy uh, Adams, actually, one of his original videos shows how you can literally just dig a hole in the ground, feed a hairdryer into it with some stainless pipe and yep. have yourself a forge. So, And they are, it, so long as you get decent airflow through it and you keep it fed right, you can make it very efficient, to be honest. Absolutely. And I mean, when, you, when you're talking about cheap, it doesn't get cheaper than that. It's literally zero cost except for the blower. And, you know, the blower can, you could pick one up from Goodwill for a dollar or something. That's right. Hair um, dryers are everywhere. Yeah, hair dryers. They're the best thing ever. Also, but, if you are a little bit handy with carpentry, look up uh, the traditional Japanese-style forge blowers that are actually go. a sliding box system. Yeah, I, I want to build a Fuego box forge, uh, box forge blower because they're they, they look great. And they're very efficient. And uh, it's it's a gentler motion uh, on your elbow and shoulder than something like a hand crank blower, if, unless you've got a nice buffalo that's like Roy Adams has. I also uh, like I also like the noise they make, you know, the clack clack of the wooden um, yeah the wooden f uh, valves. They're also very visually appealing if you're planning to do live shows because they're sort of um, everyone's used to seeing a hand crank blower or, or an electric blower or something, but the the Fuego boxes are actually uh, it's different to what people are expecting to see. However, yeah. your question, Frank, actually rolls pretty neatly into the next question, which is from Matthew Novotny. He says, hi guys, I'm interested in getting started in blacksmithing, but I don't know where to start. Do you have any suggestions? And really, the first thing you need is 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 a forge. Uh, in terms of, uh, so see, see previous answer. Did, um, did but you say blacksmithing or bladesmithing? Blacksmithing. Right, blacksmithing definitely need a forge. Now, for an <laughs> anvil, you can use any ASO or anvil-shaped object, which could be anything from a large rock which is very possible, by the way, um, yep. or a bit of rail track or even a large lump of mild steel. A lot of people have done post, uh, post uh, anvils with just a big section of, you know, six-inch round stock, big yep. truck axle or something like or that. A, or a uh, sledgehammer head. That's uh, right. Seven-pound yeah. sledgehammer, ten-pound sledgehammer head sunk into a block of wood. Mm -hmm. You got yourself a fortune. Now, I, my first ever hammer was actually a um, small, it was like a 450-gram ball-peen hammer that I picked up at a garage sale. And I still have that in my hammer collection because it's quite nifty for some of the detailed jewelry work that I do. Um, but you really, you don't need a specialized blacksmithing hammer. You can just grab an old ball-peen hammer. I wouldn't I, use a claw hammer necessarily. I, have, I was about to say, I have seen people use claw hammers, and you can. They're not the greatest, but if that's all you've got access to, it'll move metal. 
Yeah, think of it this way. If you miss hit and you rebound that hammer and it bounces back and hits you in the face, which would you rather be hit with, a ball peen or a claw? <laughs> yeah. But really, that's all you need to get started. Some way to heat that steel up, which, um, like we said, we can you can literally build a forge out of a box of dirt and a hairdryer um, and a, an old ball peen hammer and something to hit the steel on, and you, you're in business. Uh, the, the trick is to just get started. It can be intimidating when you've got nothing and you're starting from scratch, but once you actually have some steel heated up and you have hit it into a shape, even if it's an ugly shape, you will be hooked. Yep, and you're officially a blacksmith. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, there are a lot of people who like to, you know, say what is and isn't a blacksmith and, you know, you need X amount of experience or X amount of years of classes or whatever under your belt in order to be called a blacksmith. Realistically, if you've moved metal while it's hot with a hammer, you're a blacksmith. That's it. So our next question is a bit of a longer one. And this is from Jonathan Nolt. He says, hi, guys. I'm a 24-year-old beginner blacksmith from Pennsylvania in the USA who has enjoyed listening to the podcast from almost the beginning. I am a few episodes behind right now, but I am excited to listen to every episode. I'm going to miss Nils because... Uh, but I messaged him and told him we made the right choice. Uh, he made the right choice from the sounds of what has been going on in his life. I have always enjoyed watching blacksmiths growing up when I would go to many different historical farms with my family. My favorite was being able to go to the site where John Deere did his first plow making in Illinois. The blacksmith who was demonstrating was tons of fun to watch and listen to. I have a few questions that hopefully you can answer however you want to, whether or on an episode or email me back. So we're doing it live. Screw it. We're doing it live. <laughs> That's it. Uh, either way, I'll greatly, greatly appreciate the answers. All right, so first one, anvil height. The traditional height is to mount it so that your knuckles are the same height as the top of the anvil when standing, but I have been finding that it gives me back pain from just a few hours of forging a, a weekend at that height. Is it something that I'm doing that is causing the back pain, or should I remount my anvil higher, maybe stretching or standing differently? I think you guys talked about this in early episodes, but I'm not sure which episode anymore. Uh, so we'll answer this question and then move on to his next one. Um, my answer to that is that um, the uh, a lot of you will hear a lot of people say you must have your anvil face at knuckle height when you're standing, holding your clenched fists at your sides. Um, I always thought that's a really great place to start from. Uh, and then find what is comfortable for you. My ideal is actually sitting just under my wrist joint height. I like it to be a little bit higher than most. Uh, I am a fairly lanky individual. I don't know the science of it. I'm sure Sam's about to drop some knowledge, but the uh, I imagine it has a a lot to do with a very... I'm sure there's a formula that could be written based on lankiness and shoulder broadness. And uh, some people have giant feet and like to stand with the feet more apart. Some people are more comfortable and closer together. So all of these things will adjust the height that you are comfortably standing while you are working steel. So... Um, just because you've heard a rule, uh, take it as a guideline rather than a fact. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's exactly right. It is just a guideline. And a lot of it comes down to what kind of forging you're doing. Um, the original reason why the uh, anvil was situated at knuckle height was that it was the ideal height for pretty much all blacksmithing. Um, it was low enough that you could use a striker. Um, without having, you know, them trying to extend themselves too hard um, to get up over the work. Um, <clears throat> it was also low enough that you could use your blacksmith's third hand uh, to hold work on the anvil face, mm -hmm. um, because normally your knuckles are hanging around that height. 
Um, for those of you who don't know what the blacksmith's third hand is, it's the piece between your legs, the bit yep. where you clamp between your legs and hold it on the anvil. Yep. Um, uh, and it's also the height at which you should be able to stand, you know, straight backed and still forge with the hammer face falling flat on the anvil. Because most hammers have a face that is as long as your knuckles stick out from the hammer handle. Um, and that means that if your knuckles hanging down by your side are touching the anvil face, that should mean that the anvil, the hammer face is touching the anvil face fat. Face fat? Face flat. God, my mouth is just not working today. Um, anyway, so the, the main intent was to try and ensure people stand upright when they're working. But a lot of people get into the habit of leaning over their anvil, getting their faces closer to the work to look at it. Mm. Um, I, I know I'm horrible at this, um, but uh, yeah, it's when you when you're doing fine work, you tend to you know kind of crouch down, snug up on the hammer, and you're you're really working at it. It's not good for that kind of stuff because you're ending up you know kind of bent over for a long periods of time doing fine work. It's really good if you're doing heavy material moving because you want to be able to have that room to drop your body to use those uh, motor motor uh, skills and you know your your um oh man I am really not with it today um, body mechanics <laughs> if I, you're um I did a you're... whole video on it <laughs> well that's it I was just gonna say Sam and I both on our YouTube channels have done videos on hammering technique and it's um, not just anvil height and position that's going to play into you getting tired and sore after um, hammering for a while. Um, one thing I would recommend is to watch both of our videos um, on that topic and try and find what works best for you. Another thing which is uh, often played down a lot in circles because it, it gets exaggerated by people who don't know any better is learn to play, uh, uh, find a rhythm with the rebound of your anvil. Um, sometimes that comes down to finding a, uh, a cadence. Yeah. With your striking, uh, find the right place on the anvil to be striking your work. You're going to get more rebound in the center of the face than trying to hit near the edges if you're trying to draw out. Um, you And don't try and work it too hard. Obviously, if you're choking up on the grip, it's going to be putting more shock into your arm if you're doing big hits than if you were allowing a loose grip with a, a hammer held closer towards the end of the hammer. Uh, and, and use that rebound to take the shock out of your arm and your shoulder and, and into the work itself and hopefully move a bit more steel. But watch those videos and it'll explain it in a lot more detail. Uh, for now, we'll get on to your next question in this email. He says, I would also like to hear more about hammer types and primary uses for the designs like the rounding hammer, dog's head, cross peen, etc. Tips on using the styles and preferences of the various styles. Tool time is my favorite part of the episode as the tools are just awesome. They are awesome. They are awesome. Uh, we, we, we love tools. Yeah. That, um, that is an incredibly in-depth question. That's a long answer to that question. <laughs> I and could talk it, about hammers for days. It's actually one that would make a phenomenal video topic. It would. I, I think actually that's something I'm, I might actually end up having to do myself. And Yeah, we might end up having to do that. Yeah. You'll probably end up doing one yourself as well, Alex. But um, yeah, there, maybe, there, maybe. there are a large variety of hammers. I have many of them. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, I will say that I would say 90% of my forging is done between a, a turning hammer uh, or a rounding hammer, you might know it as, um, and a cross peen. Yeah. Um, between those two, you can pretty much do anything. 
Yeah, I, I regularly switch back between three hammers, which is normally uh, a turning hammer, a uh, rounding hammer, um, a cross peen, and my dog's head hammers. Um, mm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a big dog's head fan. I have one dog's head, and it's for beveling blades, and I've deliberately <laughs> got it mounted onto the handle at a slight cant, um, specifically for beveling. So I don't often use it for non-beveling activities. Yeah, I'll use uh, mine for anything because yeah, that's I right. really like mine. <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, well, Sam is going to make a video just for you. Um, yeah, exactly. To, to coat that uh, topic nicely. Um, so your next question is, uh, he said, one idea I had for the future of the podcast would be to make a website so you can link resources to building plans, suppliers, classes, etc. I'm on some Facebook groups that have great files, sections, but nothing beats a good website to list stuff. Well, we like to try and spread the word so that other people can get page views uh, and visits to their own content. So we probably won't end up doing that just because we like to spread the love rather than hoard it all for ourselves. That's it. We're, we're, we're not here to, to aggrandize ourselves. You know, we're not here to, you know, big name ourselves and call we are it... We not you know, experts. Make, make ourselves out to be anything more than just passionate craftspeople who really want to share our knowledge and, and uh, our passion for the craft. So it's, you know, it's important for us that people out there get an idea of who's out there, what's out there, and, and learning to investigate themselves and to, you know, build up their own kind of ideas and, and learn stuff. That's right. I mean, you should always continue to keep learning as much as possible, and Sam and I are no different in that. Oh no, yeah, we've 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 had plenty of people ask, you know, where we get the right to, you know, talk to audiences about, you know, stuff. But at the end of the day, a lot of what we talk about comes from experience. Some of it comes from talking to people who have the experience. But um, as you'll know if you've listened to this show for quite a long time, is that we're always willing to say when we don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, if we don't know, we'll point you in the direction of someone who does. That's um, it. We're, we're not the arbiters of everything that is good and right in the world. We just, we have opinions on some things. We could be wrong and we're always willing to hear if you guys have a different opinion or if you guys have evidence against something that we've put up. We've had a couple people correct us uh, and I'm always happy to be corrected because I think it's the only way to learn. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it, for us it's not about, you know, kind of bringing ourselves up above everyone else. It's just we, we want to help, you know, Help the spread that All right. So, and finally, he says, Sam, I really enjoy hearing about steel alloys and the characteristics of the various alloys from a personal interest and also a professional interest. I am a technical professional in the powder coating industry. So, learning more about any alloys is always helpful. Keep on rambling on about steel and its properties and anything with blacksmithing in general. LOL, Jonathan. Well, that's awesome, dude. I'm glad don't, you enjoyed Don't encourage him. My... <laughs> I'm enjoy my rants. I don't think I'm ever going to stop. So, you know, it's safe to say that uh, you're, you're, you're safe there, mate. It's his brand now. It's, it's part of it. It's my brand. All right. So next question is from Will Miller. He says, hey, guys, love the podcast. It has helped me find a number of great smiths to help inspire me on my journey. I've heard you mention a few times that one of the downsides of a propane forge is that you can't get an isolated heat. So I thought I'd share this with you. This is a vertical forge that I'm building. He's attached a photo of this. Yeah, I saw that. I I saw that one. Uh, They are starting to gain some popularity in my area of the States with knife makers because you can get a localized heat on your steel, allowing you to only heat one section of the steel that you're working. 
the one in the picture can fit a nine inch wide blade inside, but only heats about a three inch section. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure this forge design is on your radar and thought it might be something Sam would especially like. Sam likes everything blacksmithing related. <laughs> it's true. There isn't something uh, blacksmithing related that I don't like. And it's, That's um, right. thank you very much for sharing that. I did actually see that photo. And it's funny because um, Ben Potter, bladesmith on YouTube, um, who was working, or kind of working alongside David Delegadel for a while. Uh, of Cedar Law Forge, who's been on the show before, uses uh, only the Vertical Forge. Um, which, yeah, they are a fantastic design. Um, they're basically just, yeah, a, a, a standard uh, LPG uh, tank forge turned upright. Mm. <clears throat> uh, and actually, the Don Fogg uh, welding forge design is a Vertical Forge. And um, I plan on building a Don Fogg welding forge one day. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know who Don Fogg is or what his design is, I encourage you to look it up. He's um, ABS Master Smith, I believe, and uh, developed a really cool welding forge. But um, yeah, the, the vertical forges are great. The only reason that I haven't built one at the moment is because I'm wanting a kind of do-all um, forge for my work. Isn't that just a solid fuel forge? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. I, I have fire bands that last like six months of the year. Um, no, so the, the big thing for me is that I'm working between bladesmithing and hammer making and axe making. And so if I have a forge that can only heat a three inch section of material and has a relatively small opening, um, then I can't fit five hammer billets in it to do a production run of hammers. Um, so I need the size of forge to accommodate the, you know, various materials that I need to use. Uh, on top of that, I don't have the money or the time to be investing in building nine different forges for all of the different processes that I want. I would love to have the time and money to do that, <laughs> as I think would we all, but, um, I'm currently in the process of, um, uh, I'm going through and building a suite of forges at the moment because of the variety of the kind of work that I've been required to do doing this full time out in the country. Um, and of the four types that I'm building, uh, well, I've got my, my fire pot uh, forge, standard fire pot forge. I've got my standard gas bottle forge, but I'm also going to be building a channel, a solid fuel channel forge, uh, and also a smaller pass-through gas forge um, that's deliberately kind of like a, a pass-through soup can forge, but with a decent burner in it um, for uh, when the fire bands are on doing longer things specifically for bladesmithing. However, when I saw the photo that you sent, Will, of the um, vertical forge, it did give me a really good idea for if you've seen the um, forges that Black Dragon Forge makes, Niels Vandenberg, uh, he has a, it's an upright gas bottle forge style, but you go through the side. I thought, imagine if it also had an, a closable door on the top. You could close up the sides and open the top. You could actually convert it into one of those um, if you were doing that style of forge. That would be really, really cool. And Niels, if you're listening to it, I won't charge you for that idea. You can <laughs> take it and run with it. You could turn it into a foundry for casting. Yeah, you could. It would be a very versatile piece of equipment. So it has actually got the old cogs turning uh, in the brain of this blacksmith who is in the process of building more forges. Yeah, funnily enough, um, Kyle Royer's forge is a vertical forge. Um, right. uh, you know, as, as what they call a, a vertical forge or, um, you know, a pass-through forge. Um, and his is in the Don Fogg style, um, where the burner is at the bottom of the forge 
and the opening is actually at the top, and that uh, means that you don't get any direct flame heat on your billet. Uh, hmm. That's why it's such a good welding forge, is because there's no direct heat on the billet. It's all ambient. Um, Much more even heat distribution on the piece. Yeah, and less oxidization, um, especially because most of the time your orifices tend to be a lot smaller um, hmm. than on like traditional forges where you have quite large uh, doors. Uh, yeah. Ben, ben oh, Potter's, right. Ben Potter's uh, vertical forges are actually quite small. They're those little LPG tanks. And the orifices okay. are like two inches by one inch, you know, so oh, they're right. incredibly tiny. So they're very, Is he making very whittling knives or something. Oh no, he makes everything up to falchions and stuff in them, you know, oh, geez. as long as, as long as they can pass through the, the height of the door, they're fine. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you for that, Will. Um, next question is from Andy McGregor from Scotland. Scotland. Andy McGregor. All right. Hi, Alex and Sam. Loving the podcast. As a very novice smith, you guys are a font of knowledge. Well, Sam is. <laughs> I, I tag along. Yeah, don't, don't degrade yourself too much, man. You've got plenty of information. <laughs> he says, well, my question is about knives. I'm going to forge my first knife this weekend. Are there types of knives that are easier than others? And what is best to start with? Loving the podcast and would love a shout out. Well, here, here you go. There you <laughs> it's going to be a bit. It's going to be a bit late for your weekend forging session, but uh, here's a shout out for you, Andy. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry we missed you, Andy, but uh, there you go. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, Alex, you have just recently taken a step into the uh, the knife making realm. That's um, right. Yeah. I mean, I've got my opinions, but uh, I'll leave it to you to start off with because you're coming from the the newbie's perspective. Well, that's right. After six years of blacksmithing, I decided to dip my toe into the world of bladesmithing in the last six to 12 months. And um, I found that um, <laughs> I would. It's, it's nice to sort of artistically say, I just do what the, this, it comes out of the steel. <laughs> like the steel tells me what I shape I want it to be. I will through the computer and trap you. <laughs> but really, um, what you... From a beginner perspective, I wouldn't. The, the point is, I wouldn't aim to make a particular style of knife if you are going in and you've never made a knife before. What I would do is, I would uh, taper one end of some, you know, get the steel into a bar shape, taper one end down so you've got basically a 45 degree cutoff at one end, uh, and then start hammering it, see what comes out. Realistically, you're going to come with something that looks a little bit like a drop point or a clip point knife um, once you hammer in bevels if you're going to hammer in bevels um, you may just want to actually forge it to the profile that you like and then grind it which as a beginner uh, is totally good to, to start off with I mean hammering bevels is something that <coughs> takes practice and work um, so I totally understand that if that's the case then you know just shape it to the, the one you want and do something like a standard drop point very uh, straightforward uh, knife to make if you are going to be hammering the bevels um, try and see what comes out of it. Just take into account that preform is going to be everything because when you start hammering in the bevel, uh, your uh, clip at the top is going to start bending back. The blade's going to curve away from where you're hammering the bevels and that can lead with a bit of a scimitar shape, uh, which is is always going to mean a, an ugly look at knife. So uh, be, unless you are making a scimitar <laughs> or a falchion or something, um, 
it's it's not a good look for short bladed knives let's say uh so yeah take that into account so if you're going to be just doing stock removal for the actual bevels um yeah forge it to shape go for something simple like a drop point or or a clip point and then um go from there if you're going to be forging the bevels um aim for a aim for a clip point and see what happens basically it's because i I would say as from a beginner perspective i would find that it is less important to get what you are aiming for and more important to learn how the steel moves when you forge bevels at when you're first starting out because it's all well and good to go in like our last week's forge cast challenge uh or a couple of weeks before forge cast challenge was the harpoon point was it Uh, Uh, so yeah, no, no, that was um, the week before, yeah. Yeah, that's right, because um, then it was pineapple twist. Mm. Um, so doing a, uh, like, one of the biggest things that I found when I first started doing the harpoon clips on mine was to actually get a straight harpoon clip, um, and you can only get a straight harpoon clip from two outcomes. One is knowing how your steel is going to move, and two, luck. <laughs> so understand from a beginner perspective especially since this is going to be your first knife and you've never done one before i would say learn how the steel moves before you go planning a specific type of knife to make um then aim for something like a drop point or a clip point that's my take on it fair enough well i've, I've interpreted it a little differently uh to alex as is my nature. <laughs> um, so when you come to your first knife, um, I, I normally recommend doing a full tang um, because full tangs are a lot easier than uh, hidden tangs, especially in the finishing stages. Um, and forging a hidden tang without certain tools or certain experience can be really fun. Um, <laughs> and he means fun, you'll give up knife making. By fun, I mean really intimidating and a pain in the ass. Um, but no, so actually one of my favorite knife, uh, knife styles to recommend to beginners is a Green River Skinner, uh, otherwise known as a Buffalo Skinner. Uh, if you look them up online, they're f- everywhere. Uh, that's Green, uh, G-R-E-E-N-E, Green River. Um, and they basically were a banana shaped, uh, full tang square bodied knife. And they are probably the simplest... Uh, profile of knife to forge purely because uh, the tang doesn't require any work at all. <laughs> you can literally just drill holes in the bar stock, the flat bar stock, and you've got your handle because it's just a rectangle. Mm. Um, and then the bevels, when you forge the bevels, you're naturally going to create the swept buffalo skinner style shape. Um, so all you need to do is point the bar. Um, if you can leave it a little uh, wider at the tip than at the uh, at the uh, junction where the handle meets the blade, all the better because they tend to be wider at the the front anyway. And uh, yeah, then just start your bevels, and <clears throat> it's a good good way to practice your bevels. You'll get a little bit of a drop from the main parent bar stock to the blade width because forging the bevels is going to widen your blade. Uh, and so you get your natural transition from handle to blade, and you you know you work your bevels and you get that nice swept. Um, that nice swept kind of look. It's a really simple design. It's really easy to forge. And, uh, at the end it comes out looking pretty good. And I also like the Green River Skinner because, uh, you know, it's, it's the fundamental knife of the plains. You know, it's the, it's the cowboy, it's the old cowboy knife. It was the knife that was favored by buffalo hunters and, you know, uh, elk hunters and stuff like that all the way through the um the frontier stage of america's history so 
<clears throat> the the only disagreements I would have as being one's first knife is that for as somebody who recently made a Green River Skinner, uh, which you can see on my Instagram, um, although it was a hidden tang, not a full tang, um, was that it, for them to be quite functional, you really want it to be fairly thin blade. Yes. Um, whereas when you're I would first starting out, after heat treat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't, what is it? Forge thick, grind thin. Exactly right. Yeah, don't try and forge it thin like I did because then you get a real sort of uh, sphincter tightening quench experience. Yeah, they're, um, they're a good blade. All to, that work. They're a good blade to forge out, forge out of a file. Um, mm. And again, don't yeah, don't forge it too thin. Um, but you can forge it to the point where you've got maybe uh, a mil and a half, uh, so 40, uh, 45 thousandths to 60 thousandths worth of edge um, for our American listeners, uh, or a mil and a half, two mil for our Australian listeners and our people in Europe and everywhere else in the world uh, <laughs> that, that use proper measurements. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you leave that much edge and heat treat it straight out of the forge. Um, and then grind it, and you can use an angle grinder to, to do the bevels on that thing because because uh, it's swept, it makes it a lot easier to do uh, to, to do with an angle grinder. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it makes a, a perfectly functional knife. Don't try and get too complicated, is my only advice. And try and pick a steel that's nice and easy and reliable to, to do the heat treat on. Yeah, it's a good one for uh, leaf spring or uh, files. Or a file like files. Said. Files is my my number one uh, suggestion. Files W two, uh, which is generally more or less what old files are made out of, is also a water quenching steel, so you don't have to go and uh, you know fill a tub with canola oil. <laughs> Although I would highly suggest the oil because oh even, yeah, your even, first quench is uh, even though ten ninety five W two and and W one are all water quenching steels, they can still crack in the quench. <laughs> it's still a very aggressive quench. So oil quenching it is always the safest bet. Mm. So. Um, Hopefully that helps, Andy. Uh, I'll probably take out this snippet of the show and send it to you so that you can actually have it in time for this weekend. Good one. Um, yeah. But uh, our final question for the day is from Will Batrick. Uh, he says, Hey, guys, loving the show. I have recently lost access to my London pattern anvil, so I'm now building up my anvil-shaped object to be more usable. I have some spring steel to weld on to make a hardened face, but I should have enough to produce a mandrel to replace the horn I had on the old anvil. My question is, would a mandrel be better used mounted in the hardy hole or set flat-bottomed on the ground? Love the work you guys do. Keep it up. Hmm. Uh, I'm not... Like, I'm, I'm trying to work out what he means by mandrel because, like, if, if he's talking about... I think he's Setting talking it. about uh, replacing a, a rounded horn with a uh, yeah, cone I, mandrel. I get that, but like if it's a cone mandrel that can be set flat on the floor and still forged with, you're not going to stick that in the hardy hole. <laughs> I don't know. I have seen some giant cone mandrels put into hardy shanks, and well, it just freaks me out. I, I suppose that's true, but um, if it's if it's something that has significant enough weight to be able to withstand being forged on while standing alone then I would not recommend putting it in a hardy hole. Um, normally, hardy, hardy mandrels tend to be... Well, I mean, you, could, you can have a cone mandrel, but um, most hardy turning uh, uses tend to come out of a bick urn, uh, or a bick iron, um, which are basically just a horn that's mounted in the, <laughs> in the hardy hole. Mm. Um, but yeah, for a, for a cone mandrel, um, both work. 
hardy mounted cone mandrels I hate because they tend to bounce around a lot. Mm, unless they're huge. Yeah, unless they're huge or unless they're wedged. And we talked about mm. what wedged tools can do to your anvils. Give your anvil a wedgie. Earlier in the uh, earlier in the episode. So, yeah, um, loose-fitting cone mandrels, especially small ones, tend to bounce around a lot and they don't do a lot of good. Uh, bickerns tend to be better for that because you're forging downwards which means you're putting a little bit of leverage on the horn, which if you're not sure about... Oh, leverage on the heel, so if you're not sure about where your hardy's it at as far as structural integrity, it may not be the best plan. Mm. Um, because the other thing you can do, and Rune Bertram Nielsen did a video on making Viking anvils. Um, one of the Viking anvils he made was from the Master Beer Find, and it was a bickern that was uh, just dropped into a stump. Um, so that's an, also an option. You can just forge a bickern out of some inch round stock and sink a stake you know make a stake on one end and, and sink that into a stump and have a separate bickern entirely um, one uh, one extra perspective which um has not yet been brought up and for once i feel like i can contribute something to, this, uh, <laughs> to the You're knowledge always that's uh, as somebody who does this full time, and I'm sure Sam will agree, uh, getting uh, building up the muscle memory of being able to just move and do a thing without having to futz around with moving tools and putting in hardies and all that sort of thing. If you're used to using a London pattern anvil that has a horn, say, on the left side, you know, you're, you're a lefty when it comes to your, your horn or whether you're a righty, I would actually take that mandrel and weld it onto the side of your anvil-shaped object to keep it in the same place that it was on the original anvil to keep that muscle memory going. Uh, if you always found it to be hand handy to have it mounted sideways, then keep it mounted sideways. Yeah, good uh, plan. Just to, I mean, it, it's just muscle memory plays a bigger part in blacksmithing than I think people realize until they have to, you know, uh, upend all their gear and go and do a live show and then you realize that you oh i need these tongs and your left hand swings out to grab a tool that's not there you know I've it's it, done that so many times <laughs> yeah anybody that's done live shows will know that so i mean the being able to do things in you know a lot of work on a piece in one heat comes down to how quickly you can move between the different parts of your shop um, and if you're used to it being in a specific place, try and replicate that with your ASO. I mean, you can get a lot of work done with an ASO, especially if you make it efficient enough. I mean, my ASO has a big old bickern on the side of it, and it hangs off just like a horn does um, on a traditional anvil. Um, it's just a rail track that's actually been ground up into a horn. So it works fine. It's loud and clacky, but it works fine. Uh, if I can make a suggestion, if you are going to mount it to the side of your ASO, it's something that I've seen quite a few people do is is weld on, you know, like they've made a, a block of steel into an anvil out of a piece of mild steel or something. But when they weld on the horn, they simply just do a butt weld where they just hold the piece against it and mm. weld around. If you can, if you have the ability to turn the material, or if you have the patience to make a tenon on the horn... And drill a hole in your anvil to you make get a more so tenon. much more stability. I still would recommend you weld it completely, but if you just have that mortise and tenon in the middle, then you can be a little bit more confident in swinging on it, because you know welds aren't particularly shear strong hmm. um, when when levered against. Um, yeah. Because you've got that heat affected zone, even in mild steel, they are very susceptible to shear cracking. So um, having that mortise and tenon joint even if it's like 10 mil round like you drill a 10 mil hole in the side of your anvil and you make a 10 mil tenon on your uh, horn 
it's just going to add that little bit of extra security and it's something that I wish more people would do. <laughs> One easier thing that you can do rather than actually, like Sam was saying, if you have the ability to turn it um, to have a shank on it, you can also drill a, say, like Sam said, a 10 mil hole in both the bickern and the anvil and put a pin in. It's a lot yeah. easier than turning it down. That's true, um, yeah. Dowling dowling would be a really good way to do yeah, it. Steel dowling is, is it, it's just going to transfer the shock of any impacts to the pin rather than the weld. And also, if you are... Like you said, you're using uh, leaf spring or spring steel. I, uh, I just assumed leaf spring, but spring steel to make the bicker. And if your ASO is mild steel, try and use uh, dissimilar welding rods when putting yes, them on rather please. than general purpose. Um, you might find them as stainless steel welding rods or 680s, I think they're called. Um, yeah, I believe they are. I haven't got them in front of me at the moment. But, yeah, but dis- you look, dissimilar look for electrons. dissimilar. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're welding them on, assuming that you're using a stick welder, but uh, you want to have dissimilar welds on them because 5160 does not necessarily weld nicely to mild if it's going to be under shock. Yeah, no no carbon steel welds to mild very well with general purpose stuff because you tend to end up uh, over-carburizing the, the weld stock and uh, creating basically cast iron. Mm. Um, that's why a lot of times when you see people forging with rebar handles on like a file or something like that, um, the weld will crack and break mm. uh, is because they've over-carburized the weld by, you know, taking up carbon from the high-carbon steel. So that's why the dissimilar electrodes really help because they're a stainless-based electrode. Yeah. And uh, that that does it for this uh, viewer question uh, episode of the Forgecast. So all that leaves now is the challenge of the week. I would like to say before we get to that, thank you so much to everyone who sent in uh, questions and stuff like that. We truly value it. Uh, I love the fact that we get enough questions that we can do episodes like this. Yeah, that um, we need to just to play catch up. And as as uh, as everyone knows, I love to talk about this kind of stuff. So the more questions you send me, the happier I am. <laughs> <laughs> I know Alex That's isn't fun. as happy because he has to listen to me ramble and ramble and ramble. But, you know. We're not here it's for Alex's right. happiness. <laughs> I, I, I bring snacks into the studio with me so that I can just sort of sit back and I have a minty. This isn't this isn't the Sam show. I, I'm not trying to make it. Well, I, I actually feel bad after some of these episodes because you know I realised that I spent most of the episode talking. So <laughs> that's right. I promise Sometimes I'll I shut up one day. <laughs> right, uh, challenge of the week. This one's an interesting one, and it may require you to make special tooling. Nothing fancy, but you may already have it. You may not. We want you to punch a hole cleanly enough that it drops a slug out the other side. A lot of people who have punched holes and drifted holes for, you know, axe eyes or hammer eyes, sometimes you mess it up and it breaks messily and you get dirty sides to the hole. We want to see a picture of the hole that you punched and the slug that cleanly dropped out the bottom sitting next to it. And an important caveat is we're not talking about a hammer punch. We're not talking about an axe punch. You can punch a hole in a piece of flat bar um, or, you know, like a a pair of tong reins or something like that. Mm. Um, All of that punching is allowed. Um, (laughs) It's just... We want a traditional punched hole... Yep. With a slitting chisel, or you know, it wouldn't be a slitting chisel; it'd be a hammer eye punch, or hammer eye punch, or something like that, or a round punch, it, or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, somewhere where it it doesn't just part the steel; it actually, you know, slices out a little sheared nugget 
that is the uh, the basically the the shape and size of the hole that you just punched and uh, cleanly breaks off, which means that you struck it nice and level. You kept it straight all the way through. It takes it takes some doing. And I'm not perfect at it. Sam's not perfect at it. <laughs> it. It might take you a few goes to get it, but we want to see those photos. I mean, want you to tag or use the hashtag, hashtag Forgecast Challenge, and show us those pictures. So, it's a it's a tricky one. So it sometimes is. we're going to give you easy ones. Sometimes we're going to give you tricky ones. This is one of the trickier ones, especially if you're a beginner. But uh, it also gives you an excuse if you haven't already to make yourself a um, a hammer eye punch. Indeed. So it's a handy tool to have, whether you're going to be making rail spike tomahawks or your own hammers or anything like that. It's a good way to do it. I have actually drifted at um, holes and dropped slugs using just round punches before um, for tong reins. Uh, it takes a bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just flat-topped bloody round punches. It works well. Um, but, you know, it's possible. and We want to see those slugs. So show us your slugs. Indeed. And in the meantime, if you need to find Sam... You can find me at Samtowns Bladesmith uh, on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, The Kitchen Sink. You can also find Alex. I go by Valhalla Ironworks and you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Etsy and Redbubble and even TikTok. Yes, I'm <laughs> still on TikTok. I'm hanging in there. I'm gaining will- traction. I will never cease to laugh at TikTok. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we have really enjoyed answering your questions. We love seeing you roll in. So we'll catch you all next week. Keep those fires lit, whether it's the one in your fingers or the one in your heart. And we'll see you again next week, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. See you, guys. Oh!